Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here. We would love it if you'd share the episode, rate the episode, comment. We've got a lot of listener comments that we'll get to in an upcoming episode. We're going to talk with, in just a few minutes, we're going to talk with Joe McCullough, who represents a few of the jurors that are part of the jury tampering controversy involving Alec Murdoch's double murder conviction. We are part of the Evergreen Podcast Company. And uh, reach out to us. I think I might have said that already, but I'm saying it again. Impact of Influence on Facebook. So, Seton, what do we have here? Well, since our last episode, uh, we have heard from Neil Gordon, who is the co-author of Becky Hill's book, Behind the Doors of Justice. Um, he posted on our Facebook page, I guess we had some comments about people talking about the fact that their book was self-published and that why would there be these deadline pressures that she says she felt and maybe that led her to these uh admitted plagiarism yeah she admitted plagiarism yes so he says that they were trying to get their book out prior to uh the boating crash uh trial which was initially i believe scheduled for august the civil lawsuit lawsuit, which settled so that trial did not happen but they were trying to uh get this book out because they knew that there would be renewed interest. interest. So that, and that seemed to make sense. And I heard that uh, was the case with some of the documentaries. So that, that did make sense. And since this, he has also released a statement which addresses some of the unpublishing of their book. Once he found about the plagiarism, he made a statement that they weren't going to sell the book anymore, but the book is for sale. Still on, on Amazon. Amazon. So uh, this is dated January 8th. This is the statement and the press release. Neil Gordon, co-author of Behind the Doors of Justice, has announced he'll donate his most recent proceeds from the book, the scholarship, two scholarships in the low country of South Carolina. In late December, Gordon discovered his co-author, Colleton County Clerk Becky Hill, had plagiarized the book's preface, and he announced his intention to immediately stop selling the book. Unfortunately, as first-time publishers... Gordon and Hill didn't realize removing a book from Amazon wasn't a simple process. And he puts in a quote, when Becky Hill's husband unpublished our book, Kindle and audiobook online December 22nd, we were under the impression that sales would cease immediately, Gordon said. When sales continued, we examined our publishing agreement and discovered it takes more time to remove a book from circulation, according to the agreement. And then he has the agreement that's part of the deal he writes with Amazon, says you may withdraw your digital books from further sale and your print books from further on-demand printing in the program at any time on five business days advance notice by following the then-current program procedures for book withdrawal or unpublishing. We will fulfill any custom orders completed 
through the date of the books are available for sale, and we may continue to sell any inventory we have of print books. All withdrawals of books will apply prospectively only and not will not with respect to any customers who purchased the books prior to the date of removal, which makes sense. Uh, consequently, as of January 8, 2024, nearly 900 copies of the book have sold since Gordon went public with Hill's plagiarism. Gordon's net share of the royalties comes out to $2.50 per unit, the December and January proceeds of which won't be available to February and March. Once the Gordons receive the net proceeds from their share, they will donate 100% of the money to low country charities. Quote, we want this money that came out of a bad choice to be used for good. So that is good that he is doing that. There you go. Now let's move on to our guest. He is defense attorney. He's a professor. He's a former prosecutor. And he represents some of the jurors involved in the jury tampering case with the Murdoch trial. He is Joe McCullough. Hello, Joe. Howdy, guys. I hope the storm treats you well. Yeah, it's thundering like crazy. So how many do you represent? Are you allowed to say? I represent two jurors and uh, obviously have spoken with others, but um, currently two jurors. What will be happening on the the Tuesday after MLK Day? What's going to be going on in that hearing? Well, the hearing that was scheduled for the 15th, now scheduled for the 16th, will occur here in Richmond County. And to my best understanding, it is an open hearing. I think that uh, Justice Toll recognizes this, the important significance of transparency. She obviously appreciates how uh, uh, much this case has been publicized and how much public interest there is. So I believe that this hearing is going to be open to the public. Uh, the litigants will be there, the Attorney General's office staff, uh, the defense uh, Griffin and Harputlian, uh, and I know that uh, Mr. Bland corresponded with the court to uh, uh, ask for the right to attend, and uh, I apparently was granted that right that lawyers who represent jurors may attend. Now, the only nuance that makes that a little different is, after doing this almost 50 years, generally speaking, status conferences are opportunities for the litigants to speak to the judge about procedural matters and to generally discuss how the proceedings are going to occur and some issues that may relate. And I can outline what I think will be dealt with uh, next week in a moment. But a lot of times status conferences uh, really occur in the judge's chambers and there's no record. I mean, it's just Lawyers and a judge getting together to talk about. They're not arguing motions. They're not uh, making final decisions. It's the judge taking the temperature of the litigants on issues. So that's what I expect to happen. But I think there will be some significant questions answered. And, and the questions that I understand to be on the floor currently um, start with, of course, the one that's most near and dear to, to the hearts of folks like you, which is, are there going to be open and transparent hearings throughout the process? Will the public be available, uh, able to be present? Will the media be present? Will there be live streaming? Court TV has, in a court order issued by Justice Toll, uh, Court TV has been designated as the official um, camera. Uh, everyone else gets a live feed from that. Mm -hmm. So 
what that means, uh, Matt and Seton, is is really when you look back at the history of how these uh, matters involving possible jury interference have been handled. Generally speaking, judges bring the jurors uh, into an in-camera situation, meaning nobody but the litigants, the judge, court personnel are present while the juror is questioned uh, by the court to determine if there was some degree of, of interference or communications. Let's start there. And that's done without the public, without media. Um, but I think in a case like this, you almost have to uh, look at the rules and the standard of practices previously and then uh, apply perhaps a slightly adjusted standard to this proceeding because it is such an extravagance of interest publicly. But, you know, I hope, and I certainly don't get a say-so, uh, but if I were asked, uh, I would recommend that these jurors, all of them, uh, have given a heck of a lot of their time, six weeks of their life, to a grueling experience that they did not. They were invited to the party. They didn't buy a ticket. Yeah. So to now expose them to the stressful environment of what may be a carnival-like experience, though I can tell you, knowing Justice Toll now for more than 50 years, uh, she will uh, control her courtroom and there will be no carnival atmosphere. But so when I use that phrase, I'm simply saying, you know, there'll be generally cameras, media, a lot of public. Um, a full house. A, a full house. And I think it, it's just, it's not a good thing to expose a juror to that. Now, we did a good job during, well, a reasonably good job during the trial, murder trial, to protect their identities. And so, first and foremost, I think that the jurors will be consistently referred to by number, not name. They won't be allowed to be photographed, or, or even the artists, artists won't be uh, able to do renderings and sketches. But I think an important question is, is the extent to which the proceedings will be public. Now, there are other witnesses. Perhaps the clerk of court, as a witness, uh, will not be given that same kind of uh, privacy in terms of an in-camera proceeding. But again, that's up to the judge. And the judge has, I understand, requested the lawyers on both sides give their opinions about all that. The next significant question is, how will those jurors and how will any witness be be um, questioned? Mm -hmm. and, and historically, again, the cases have suggested that the best uh, or the usual method is that the judge asks the questions to take the temperature down, to, to, to create less than, you know, an aggressively challenging cross-examination by the advocates on both sides of the case. And, and why should jurors be subjected to that? And I don't believe they should be, again. And I think that, that having the court ask the questions uh, and I, I suspect that there is some discussion uh, with these uh, lawyers about how they think the proceedings should be handled in terms of questioning. Questioning, and and if it's the, this judge's decision that that she will do, be asking the questions, I'm confident she'll give them an opportunity to submit questions. Mm. But I think that 
that her ability to control the proceedings and keep the temperature level, respectful and civil is going to be uppermost in her mind. And, and you know, and I'll shut up for a minute, but to, to just finish that thought, um, and I'm happy to explain the law here in, in, in a moment if you have time, but, mm -hmm. you know, in the, I was struck in the response filed by the attorney general's office that they uh, uh, had a sentence or two in there about uh, that jurors should be protected from aggressive and overzealous advocates mm -hmm. because it might tend to chill or discourage jury participation for jurors yet to be summoned into a courtroom around South Carolina. I endorse that thought because I think that's why this proceeding will show great uh, protection of the uh, anonymity of these jurors and respect for the sacrifice they've made and not expose them to undue stress. So I, I'm, I fully expect that, that this judge uh, who has such an appreciation and admiration for the law in our profession is going to control a run a really tight ship. Um, but, you know, it disturbed me greatly when I read that response that uh, the response from the attorney general referred to the two jurors I represented as potentially dishonest, mm. which uh, is why when I was contacted by the attorney general's office and by SLED, and all of this is memorialized in a letter that is a part of the record, so I'm not speaking mm -hmm. out of school or out of turn. Uh, I said with pretty can pretty much candor, I just wanted a judge to tell me that my clients could or should be interviewed by SLED uh, and, and or by the attorney general's office but I had a hesitancy because I think that they're conflicted. I think that, that there's a very real chance that, uh, that they have a guilty verdict. And if that is their primary motivation to circle the wagon and protect that jury verdict over, over the single most important issue in this trial, which is, was it a fair process? If, if their number one, is as I've just said, and number two is fair trial, then, and based on their labeling these jurors as dishonest because their testimony and their affidavits that, that uh, were submitted by the defense, uh, you know, run uh, against the interests of the attorney general and law enforcement in protecting the verdict. Well, you know, why would I want to sit down with with those people to be attacked in an interview setting when, when they're ultimately, and, and they, they're willing to do it. Um, and they certainly are willing to come to court and will be in court, uh, to answer again under oath as they did in their affidavits. I want to say, we're going to put the letter up for Joe. We already had it up, but we'll put it up again on the, on the impact of influence Facebook page. Go ahead. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef crafted dietitian approved, uh, including popular options like calorie smart, keto protein plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. What did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature Premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact50 and use code impact50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That codes impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to get back to this dishonest uh, allegations against uh, these jurors, but first I want to backtrack to how this uh, how this proceeding may look. Do you think that it it's going to be behind closed doors where we only get a transcript? That's my first question, and my second question is. Uh, How are they going to uh, question these jurors if they say, well, my friend Sue said this? Are they going to only refer to each other as numbers? Because you would have to, you know, if I say Matt said this, then, well, then we know Matt is a juror on, on. Redact the. Yeah. How, 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 how is that in your mind logistically going to work? Well, Satan, I've been involved in court TV cases. And, and in fact, I think I mentioned maybe the last time I was on with you that, the, the very first televised trial in South Carolina was in 19-something, 90, early 90s, I believe. And it was at a time when Dick Harputlian was solicitor. I was in private practice. Uh, Dick and I had been law partners prior to that. But there was a famous case here in Richland County that came to be called the hit-and-run case. And Justice Toll, who was at that time Chief Justice, ordered... A uh, an experiment, and the experiment was to allow ETV to come into the courtroom and televise the proceedings gavel to gavel for the two weeks of the trial, and it was shown on ETV with a panel discussion every night. Are you saying that was the very first one in South Carolina? First time cameras were ever allowed in South Carolina. So there's a there's Justice a, a, Toll was 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 the was the presiding judge. And Harpootlian's there? No, she was, she was not the presiding oh, judge. She, she, was the, she was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Oh, and she right. ordered that it be done. Gotcha. Oh, wow. Okay. Because it, because it took her order to allow the cameras to be in the courtrooms. So she's had, on the side of transparency. Yeah. Well, I think that that denotes mm-hmm. that and or underscores that. And, and thereafter, over a a period of time, we formulated the rules that we have today for the televising of, of cameras in the courtroom. But it, it, it again, kind of uh, brings to light the small nature and the curious coincidence and confluence of personalities and people and all yeah. that. But but So that's a long way of getting back to the fact that during that proceeding and others I've been involved with, there are redactions and, and blackouts and things of that nature, but I, I, I'm going to guess that there, that the camera will likely remain in the courtrooms even during the in-camera proceedings um, because I think that that transparency will suggest the propriety of that. They won't 
obviously show the the juror's face. Um, their their audio would be heard, and whether that's done in real time or live, I would you know again I don't know. I mean all of this is up to a very smart judge who's going to make these decisions. But the the having the matter televised without the attendant packed courtroom gives the that kind of it that's a, a good way to reduce the stress but maintain a balance of transparency so i'm i'm thinking that may happen seaton and now i've forgotten your second question what was it oh well, i forgot my second well, question this? as well <laughs> is there is there any chance on tuesday justice toll says we're not going to do the evidentiary hearing i mean i know it's scheduled so is this just going to confirm those dates? Uh, is it is it official that the hearing's happening, or is it just blocked out? No, th- those dates are pretty uh, pretty carved in stone, I believe. Yeah. But but then you know I'm I'm only uh, representing jurors. I haven't been to the previous status conferences. I'm not privy to whatever uh, things, motions, if any, have been made under seal. But I I'm not hearing anything that would suggest to me that, that there's going to be a kind of a continuance. Uh, and, and I suspect that this hearing will be done in three days. I don't think it will go longer than that. I think there's some other issues that, that have to be considered. Um, like, you know, who will testify? I would surmise that, uh, you know, part of this proceeding on uh, next Tuesday will include, uh, you know, parties mentioning or outlining who they intend to call and some discussion about that, whether, whether the jury, you know, the witness lists are going to be provided during the proceeding to the media. I don't know the answer to that. I think there's some other interesting questions about who testifies and whether, whether only the jurors who, who considered who reached the verdict uh, will alternates mm. testify, That's will, big. you know, all of that. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that relates to the, the setting aside of three days tells me that, that that's a lot of time. There are arguably uh, 12 jurors who reached a verdict. I think that the number of alternates uh, would be, and if you count the excused, that would make four more potential witnesses. So now we're up to 16. There are obviously other possible witnesses along with the, the clerk of court and, and clerk staff. I don't, I, you know, it's hard to say, but um, um, it, it'll, it, it will be interesting, but popcorn will not be permitted. Well, okay, so I did remember my second question. My question was, okay, if this proceeding is live, uh, obviously the jurors uh, would not be on camera, um, but if how would they uh, deal with names? You know, because obviously Ah. one juror is going to say, well, Bob said this or Sue said this, and then that is identifiable information. So how do they deal with that in a live setting? Well, it's a darn good question. Redaction is difficult um, when you're talking about bleeping out. Yeah, that's hard. Uh, that, that's you know that, that everybody's on their toes, and we none of us like that process. But I, but I, the only way to 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 reduce the complexity of redacting 
uh, camera work is is to do a delayed, you know, mm. ten second delay and have somebody with their finger on the trigger. But right. yeah, I guess yeah. I guess we could go uh, kind of basic and use flashcards and <laughs> let me show you a photograph of juror number seven twenty two yeah. and ask you if this is the person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Statement you have read and this is uh, who I'm asking you about. I mean. I, I mean, I'm saying glibly flashcards, but some yeah. alternate method that, that that lets the process move along with alacrity and speed, but but without revealing the privacy and and the and, and impeding the impeaching the credibility of the, of each juror. I mean, this to me it's paramount, and the, and the very reason that I was first asked by these two jurors to be involved in, in representing them was for the simple purpose of getting the press off of their back. These were not people who flew to New York. They were not people who did uh, Netflix or TV. They were people who didn't want to be bothered. And, and so they reached out and I, we talked and I agreed to, to do that, which I thought was appropriate to let the press know that they had no interest in speaking to the press and happily I was pretty successful at that. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that, uh, you know, these jurors, um, as I think will be seen and I don't want to get too much out there, but I think that, that their willingness to now come forward is, uh, in, is because they believe that even the worst of us are entitled to a fair trial. So then we go to the three days, the, the evidentiary hearing. At the yep. end of that, do they does uh, Justice Toll say okay, new trial, or does she say we need to investigate more? What 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 would happen? What's going to happen at the end of the three, or does she say it's over? Well, Matt, to digress one second, there yeah. won't be any witnesses at the January sixteenth hearing. But so right. when we when we look at right. the three day proceedings, uh, your question is a good one. Um, my general experience these days is uh, that judges tend to take matters under advisement. And uh, I suspect at the conclusion of this hearing, or, or in the third day of the hearings, the lawyers will make arguments to the court. And when they conclude their arguments, uh, Justice Toll, uh, by virtue of being on the the uh, Supreme Court bench for, gosh, I don't remember now, 25 years, mm -hmm. um, and Chief Justice for a, a significant part of those years. Um, she has, uh, after retirement, uh, moved back to the circuit court bench, where I have found her to be so incredibly prepared and ready to make a decision. Um, she is very thoughtful and very bright. I think first in her class at our law school, and we one of her predecessor chief justices was often heard to say, uh, "I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt." <laughs> uh, Justice Toll, I think, <sighs> is a very thoughtful judge who will want to be right, but I think that that she will have an excellent command of the, the legal issues and the facts before this here, these three days ever begin. And so I think that she will be checking boxes and taking notes. 
that affirm uh, her understanding of the facts and that fall on her ledger sheet on the side of a new trial or not. So I think it is very possible because she is a very bright and very decisive uh, jurist that she may decide at the, without delay because I think she understands that, that the degree of interest in this thing is such that, that the sooner we get on to a bottom line, the better. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and there's some other considerations out there, but you know, that may affect her decisions. But uh, if you like, I can try to explain in, in a thumbnail what the legal issues are. Yeah, we'd love it. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And I, I guess what it, the legal issue is, the one that you and I have talked about and we talked about in the podcast is whether or not, the big one seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, the big one seems to me, one side saying it, a court official said something. It doesn't matter if it swayed somebody or not. And the other side is saying it had to, you had to have a, a, a juror say that they the outcome would have been different. Different, okay, right? That's that is what I see as the big one. Am I am I wrong? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's how you get there is yeah. that is the magic. The devil is always in the details. So right. I'll step off the diving board and do a quick uh, yeah dive in jury jury tampering for dummies. And neither of you are dummies. <laughs> oh, yes, we are. Oh no, no we we, dummies. we we accept it. We 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 know we're not. We're not. <laughs> well, God knows I've certainly been called a dummy sometimes by judges, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, so our we don't have a long history uh, of of uh, cases in the arena of jury influencing, jury tampering is the the more popular phrase, I suppose. We do have a criminal statute for jury interference, um, and but but this proceeding is there are not many cases, but the cases are, that are out there begin with a case called State versus Green, which your viewers can handily Google. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's referenced in both sides of of their their filings, their briefs. Yeah. Well, it, it State v. Green kind of outlines how another court handled it at the trial level, and then it outlines from our Supreme Court at the time um, how it should be handled and how the issues work out. And it works like this. The, the first consideration is a determination factually whether there were communications uh, to the jurors by some party not on the jury. And that could be a member of the community trying to communicate. It could be um, a court official. And in State v. Green, it happened to be a bailiff. Yeah, bailiff. bailiff. Bailiff, as I recall, was buttonholed by a juror in the hallway and asked, what happens if we can't reach a decision? And the bailiff said, well, if you get deadlocked, the judge is going to bring you in there and he's going to read you the riot act or something, read you the uh, some more instructions and tell you to go back and get a decision. Well, that came to light uh, post-trial after the conviction. and And what our Supreme Court said is, so the first issue is, were there communications? Mm-hmm. The, the second part of that is, was the communication of a procedural nature or was it of a nature that went to the merits of the jury's deliberations? And in green, the court found they did not grant a new trial. They reversed the trial court and said that... Um, 
that a new trial was not appropriate because the communication was rather innocent, was harmless, and, and was procedural in nature. But had it been on the merits, had it been material to the jury's deliberation, material essentially meaning could it tend to have affected a jury's uh, deliberation, then the burden shifts to the state of South Carolina to show that, that it was harmless, that it had no effect on the jury. And, and that's, you know, that's hard. Do you think there's a difference, though, between a bailiff and an electric court official? Not really. Um, I think either could make an innocent remark and either could make a seriously Im improper remark. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, court officials, which include uh, bailiffs, um, stenographers, court reporters, um, clerks of court, you know, they, they essentially operate every day in the courtroom interacting with juries. But, but I, you know, the, the unwritten rule is you can talk about the weather. You can talk about meals. You can talk about what time you get to go home. You can talk about smoke breaks and, and things. You can answer questions. You can make communications. Every trial I've ever had, somebody's you know, we're running a little late and somebody needs to call somebody's babysitter and say we're going to be 15 minutes late. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all procedural, innocent communications. The question here is, were there, I mean, it, it, uh, it seems to me that by virtue of the fact that the Court of Appeals remanded this to the trial court, the Supreme Court, um, upon uh, Judge Newman's de decision to withdraw Appointing Justice Toll, Justice Toll now setting aside three days for a hearing. I think we're over the fact that the facts support that there were communications. We're we're moving to that point where uh, a close scrutiny of the communications are going to be had during these three uh, days to determine if they were harmful or not. The one thing you said just to backtrack and hopefully I'm getting it right for layperson reasons. When when the actual trial goes on, the burden is on the state to prove someone is guilty and innocent. Then once that uh, verdict is reached and you want to have uh go for a retrial based on jury tampering whatever, now the burden is on the guy or gal who got convicted to prove it happened. But once you prove it happened, then the burden switches over back to the state to prove it had no effect. Am I getting was that basically right? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it kind of bounces the situation. But I I don't I have not heard a pronouncement, I and mean, we may learn whether that burden shifting has occurred in Justice Toll's mind uh, next Tuesday. Oh, okay. I don't I don't know that pronouncement has been made. I certainly haven't haven't seen it, but I think the cases speak in those terms, and it, and it may be at this point that that. Um, Justice Toll doesn't deem it appropriate that the burden shifts, but but that a full factual evidentiary hearing occur on the question of harm, harm or not, mm. and let the parties argue at it uh, mm. once once all of the information's in. So um, it'll be interesting to watch, uh, uh, and it will be interesting to see the outcome. I'm interested to see uh, who, whether uh, Justice Toll limits it, like you've said, just to the jurors, or possibly we hear from 
Becky Hill and others who may or may not have witnessed any of these communications? I think that, that you know, Justice Toll is going to be mindful of the public, public interest and respectful of the, the job that the media has to educate and inform the public. She's certainly an advocate of transparency and, and a believer in, in that the achievement of transparency through uh, television. Um, so I think she's going to be constantly balancing the, the privacy of these jurors and the, the potential negatives if the process imposes upon these, and I'll call them innocent jurors, all of them are innocent, uh, again, they did not ask to be on this jury. Can I ask you one uh, macro question about that? When does the common person need to get an attorney? I mean, these, like you said, these people didn't commit a crime as far as we know. So when does the, the a common, like, what would you tell some people? When do they need to get an attorney? Well, <laughs> you know, among my group of lawyer friends, we say that people should have uh, an attorney for every waking hour. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, let's but get that hourly can wage. We retain you. Can we retain <laughs> you. That, that, that may just be business development. But, but I, will, I, will, I, will, I will say this. Anytime you're in an official proceeding, um, it is much easier for a lawyer to be in your ear protecting the process in which you're involved or protecting you from that process running off the rail and giving you a pinch even if you're not accused of something, even if you're not, even, like, even if you're not accused of something, okay. but you know, before and during the proceeding, it's a whole lot later to clean up the spilt milk. And, yeah. and so do jurors need a, a lawyer? I don't know that they do in, in a, in a real, um, sense. Uh, I mean, the jurors are not being accused of impropriety, right? right. Nothing. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, that having a lawyer at their side is a decision that everybody makes. If I were not a lawyer and I were in this situation, I would damn sure have a lawyer just to have somebody to hold my hand and explain what in the hell is going on. Especially high profile. Well, and an like advocate this, yeah. for you, an yeah. advocate, because, you know, you, you, like you've said, your clients have been requested to participate in all these different interviews and, you know, just to, guide you help guide you so that you're not you know doing an interview every other with law enforcement every other week i mean you these people probably have jobs and that sort of thing well seaton you raise a good point but one one thing that has become clear to me both in my career as a prosecutor and and for the more of my professional life as a defense lawyer often involved in criminal cases Police and lawyers behave a hell of a lot differently in an interview setting when you have a lawyer. And yeah. and that should not be the case. Right. But by God, it is the case. And I think that, you know, if your listeners don't understand that, if they're in, invited down for some innocent questions about their neighbor getting murdered, I would not recommend going without a lawyer. It, the truth will not always set you free, and the Innocence Project's thousands of wrongful conviction reversals ought to be shining proof of that. Yeah, 
And just because you think that you haven't done anything wrong or you know you haven't done anything wrong doesn't necessarily mean you don't need a lawyer. Right. Well, it ruins somebody else's life. And and your belief as a layperson that you haven't done anything wrong (laughs) uh, may not be accurate. True. And and, uh, there's an old saying about don't don't hire your real estate lawyer to handle your murder trial <laughs> yeah that's uh well although i feel like it's good so, advice sound advice yeah yeah uh, one thing we're all thrilled about is that this is all going to be in richland county <laughs> that part it's a 30 yards to the front door i am ecstatic about that as much as i love my time in walterboro yeah and the fabulous hotel i stayed in uh, it'll be nice to uh be able to run across the street and back. So you two are, if you're in town, you're invited to use the conference room. Oh, we're, oh for sure. You. We'll take you up we on that. We might have to help, help out with some parking because last time I was there for a hearing, it was, like, you have to, they, you have to go feed your meter. Like constantly? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, if, if, if you guys will um, come in one car, um, I'll find you a space. I've got some spaces down the hill that uh, cool. we can we can allocate carefully, but I, they're going to be a uh, they're going to be hot commodities, I suspect. And parking is a pain in the neck down here. That that is absolutely true. Seaton, if your car gets towed, I've got an attorney I know <laughs> in Columbia. Uh, Joe McCullough, defense former defense attorney, still a defense attorney and former prosecutor, and uh, good guy. We appreciate you coming on with us, Joe. Thank you for breaking it all okay. down for it's us. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Joe McCullough off and running. I'm Matt Harris, Seton Tucker. Tuesday's the next uh, time we will uh, have the old gang back together, I would imagine, in Columbia. Um, We want you to reach out, uh, Impact of Influence, on Facebook. We've got a YouTube channel. We're, We're... slowly but surely getting so get find us on youtube impact of influence we'll put a link on our facebook page uh we want you to rate and share and comment on the episode and also we have another podcast with michael dewitt called the wicked south so if you yep. need a break from murdoch check that out yeah the wicked south it's, it is fun and uh it's it's, it's a cool podcast because michael is a great guy we are a uh, part of the evergreen podcast network and we'll talk soon friend Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. 
it's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.